0: Welcome to Green and Red, Scrappy Politics for Scrappy People, a regular podcast on radical environmental and anti-capitalist politics, brought to you by Bob Bazanka and Scott Parkin.
1: Welcome to the silky smooth sounds of the Green and Red podcast. I'm your co-host, Scott Parkin, flying solo today in Berkeley, California. Bob is off on assignment elsewhere, and he will be back for another episode sometime very soon. Um, so I'm going to do a little double duty on the introduction of the show. Um, just want to say thanks to all of our audience and all of our listeners, especially all of our new listeners. Uh, we have been growing quite rapidly in the last couple of months, and our listens and downloads are really starting to show it. Uh, on both our audio platforms and our YouTube. And so definitely want to thank folks for all their support out there. And definitely check out, check us out if you haven't already on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just hit a, a quick little search and you can find us on any of those. We have a really strong Instagram meme. When Bob does this segment, he never talks about this, the, the strong Instagram meme game that we have. Um, and then also if you're watching us on YouTube, hit that subscribe button down in the on the bottom right corner. And then also want to encourage people, if you um, are not already to become a donor of the Green and Red podcast, so check us out at greenandredpodcast.org and hit that support button, or you can check us out on Patreon at patreon.com backslash Green and Red podcast and become a recurring donor. And we have a a small but mighty base that we like to call the M19 Brigade on Patreon, so check us out there. Um, But kind of moving into what we're going to talk about today, we're going to be talking about climate politics in California. We're going to be talking a little bit about some terms that you may have heard, but know necessarily what they mean, you know, terms like carbon capture and storage and net zero. But more importantly, we're going to be talking about the sort of notion of California's exceptionalism around climate and climate politics. So joining me to talk about that today is uh, Gary Graham Hughes. Gary, welcome to Green and Red Podcast.
0: Thank you so much for uh, offering me this opportunity to join this very cool and cutting-edge podcast, Scott.
1: Yeah, thank you. Cutting-edge, that's a great way to talk about this. Oh, definitely. Um, Gary is the California Policy Monitor Biofuel Watch. He's the co-host and producer at Terra Verde on KPFA here in Berkeley. Uh, He's based, splits his time between the Bay Area and Humboldt County, and then he also has a master's in environmental science from the University of Montana. And so, like I said, we're going to talk about this notion of California as exceptionalism on climate and how that's actually really not the case. And we're also going to really get into one of our favorite really dirty words to talk about, which is capitalism, which is like really connected to the climate politics in California. And just to give you all a little bit of background, if you're not in California, I just always like to talk about climate impacts the climate impacts in California. Um, in 2021, there were 8,600 fires in California, where over 2.5 million acres burned. The AccuWeather estimates that California had somewhere between 70 and $90 billion in wildfire damages. Fortunately, there was actually very little loss of life this year. Uh, Compared to other years, there were only three people who lost their lives by the end of 2021 to California wildfires. Um, And so just to give y'all uh, just like a little bit of a, a thought about like when Californians are talking about climate and we're talking about fossil fuels, we definitely, you know, are, are feeling very much the impact of it. Um, and to kind of kick off, uh, we're going to talk about a couple of like concepts, and that's carbon capture and storage and net zero. And so, Gary, maybe um, for those of us who are in our audience are a little bit new to the idea of carbon capture. Could you give us a little bit of background on that? What it is exactly, et cetera?
0: Uh, yeah, I, I just wish it was easy to rapidly answer that question, Scott. And I'm so the glad. The elevator wrap. The elevator wrap. Honestly, yeah, we yeah. have some time here to explore this in depth because it really is a very complicated theme. Uh, it's really you know, central to a lot of the market-based approach to climate response here in California and increasingly the idea of carbon capture is dependent upon a whole host of unproven and really very dangerous technologies. It's really kind of the uh, secret step sister, as it were, of the cap and trade program or the low carbon fuel standard. These really uh, highly celebrated market-based mechanisms here in California. But instead of just the trading... Um, or the offsetting, as it were, the idea that nature can magically make up for climate pollution. It's really the idea that we can develop technologies that will, you know, essentially, by definition, clean up the pollution after it has occurred. So yeah, climate is a major issue in California, and there's some positive things, certainly, that have been happening. Over, although we're, you know, very concerned about this focus on, quote unquote, carbon neutrality or net zero and the reliance on market mechanisms that aren't really proving to reduce emissions and the reliance on technologies that have never been proven to function and if they were, would really cause a lot of environmental and social justice impacts.
1: And when we're talking about carbon capture and storage, the, the sort of just kind of technical idea of it is that when fossil fuels are being burned, that the burners or the emitters are somehow going to be able to kind of capture it and store it somewhere and then do something with it, right?
0: Certainly. Um, and you can kind of break it down into some hierarchies. Uh, uh, you know, we at Biofuel Watch have really tried to look into these technologies and we find that there's really like a whole um matrix of technologies that are lumped together under what is known as carbon dioxide removal and some of the strongest proponents of geoengineering have been really reluctant to see carbon dioxide removal lumped in under the umbrella of geoengineering uh, but it really is by definition by some of the, you know, more leading global climate governance entities considered geoengineering. So carbon dioxide removal, the concept that we can somehow remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, clean up the pollution after it occurs. It could be everything from, you know, offsets and imagining that forests can make up for the fossil fuel Emissions, it could also be the invention of new technologies, direct air capture, this idea literally, um, as some people will call it, that you can invent these vacuum cleaners that'll suck carbon out of the sky. Um, but then a lot of the carbon capture and sequestration and a lot of the carbon capture utilization and sequestration is really about capturing the emissions from the smokestack. So it's, it's really about capturing the emissions from the pollution that's occurring uh, at the facility at the time and you know the truth is is that these are the technologies that have been kicked around for decades now that have never proven to be that effective so there's a whole array of different sorts of technologies that could be considered carbon capture
1: yeah when i, I was uh, doing a lot of coal campaigning about 15 years ago carbon capture and storage was a big sort of buzz phrase that we were hearing a lot and they were going to put scrubbers and things to capture the the emissions off of the of the coal plants, and then it seems like it went away. And now it seems that it's made, it's made a comeback, but in, it's much more ubiquitous there's, and there's different names for it that they're trying to tout as some sort of new technology, but it's pretty much the same thing they've been talking about the whole time, right?
0: I totally think that's correct. I think anyone who has experience in trying to you know debunk the narrative around clean coal had already encountered these technologies previously. And unfortunately, they, they have come back again. As a matter of fact, one of the most unfortunate sorts of trends in California's climate framework that I've discovered over working on this for, you know a couple of decades now, is how often it seems that the climate denial misinformation machines, past sorts of fantasy suggestions about how to deal with climate have, now become so central to what is supposedly progressive California's approach to climate, whether it be trading emissions and offsetting and achieving, you know, quote unquote, carbon neutrality through those sorts of mechanisms to the invention of machines to suck carbon out of the air. A direct air capture was clearly once the climate disinformation machines crown jewel, the idea that you're going to you know, be able to clean it all up afterwards. Uh, how it is that over time these become so central, you know, to quote unquote, progressive California's um, climate framework really is um, a very surreal sort of uh, development over time. But it is the reality that we're, that we're dealing with.
1: Yeah, and, the, and this like same propaganda machine that you're talking about that 20 years ago was talking about was like doubling down, tripling down on, on climate denial. Now has moved into like, oh, we can just come up with technologies that will remove the carbon out of the atmosphere or, you know, screen it out so it gets captured or what have you. I mean, it's pretty much the same entities, better word, corporations, which are are pushing this, correct? It's, it's all, all carbon capture is basically an, an industry pushed story.
0: Certainly. And of course, you know, one of the added ingredients is the way industry has been able to infiltrate the NGO sector, the non-governmental organization sector, um, and academia, and government agencies. So that's another trend that we've really noticed is a really um, active revolving door Uh, whereby, you know, entities who are working for the fossil fuel industry may go work for a think tank, and then they'll actually go work for a state agency, and then they'll move out and maybe go work for another lobby outfit. There's these instances, and you start to see that there's actually, yeah, there's kind of a, it's kind of a a corporate aligned uh, policy sort of click that is trying to basically set the policy table.
1: Yeah. And, you know, the notion of the revol- revolving door is actually something that Bob and I have actually talked about for a long time. And when it's not, you know, in, in this particular case, it's sort of, it's a fossil fuel revolving door, government agency, nonprofit sector. But, you know, when we're talking about like foreign policy, it's a revolving door with like nonprofits who are doing aid work or weapons manufacturers. And then these government agencies or people in high political office. And so this sort of notion of the revolving door is Something that's like pretty inherent in our current liberal capitalist democracy,
0: you know. It, it is real. It's a real part of how things work in Sacramento as well. There's no question about it. Um, Sacramento, it, you know, really is one of the best case studies for what we could call regulatory capture, where we have state agencies that have such close relationships with those very industries that they're supposed to be regulating that, you know, as we've seen time and time again, that ultimately there's a sort of really more of a a collusion going on between the authorities and industry than there is, you know, a real serious effort to hold them accountable.
1: And so just to kind of get into this sort of current events around California climate politics, what exactly is that happening right now around carbon capture and storage, cap and trade in, in Sacramento, in, the, in state politics in California?
0: Yeah, I'm always excited to um, share with listeners uh, of a podcast like this and, and other independent media, some of the current sorts of opportunities there are for getting engaged. So if someone, for instance, is listening to us discuss these issues today and they're like, well, how, what do I do about it? One of the best things that folks can do who are living here in California is to get involved right now with what is called the scoping plan. So the scoping plan, the development of the scoping plan is basically the creation of what's a five year, more or less roadmap to plan California climate action. Uh, the development of a scoping plan is a requirement that was built into the famous 2006 Global Warming Solutions Act, uh, the famous AB 32. It's like 15 years ago now that California really, you know, set off on on this road of, um, you know, trying trying to address climate change through these market-based mechanisms. Uh, But fortunately it was required then that the Air Resources Board, which which has the obligation, the responsibility by law to manage these climate policies would endeavor every five years to develop this scoping plan. And so right now uh, the scoping plan, the 2022 scoping plan is under development. Now it can be a, a little intimidating, to engage on these matters, but it's easy to find out about the scoping plan if you go to the California Air Resources Board website and look for a scoping plan. But I do do wanna identify uh, for folks one of the most important spaces, I believe, for actually engaging on these issues around the whole framework of carbon capture is that uh, the Global Warming Solutions Act also required that in the development of the scoping plan, there would be officially an environmental justice advisory committee, what people who are in the weeds on this stuff call the EJAC. The environmental justice advisory committee is really one of the more exciting opportunities for engaging With a scoping plan and and engaging with state agencies because as it (laughs) infers by name this is a convening of all of the most important and most experienced environmental justice advocates in the state now the ejac has been basically round filed in the past their their recommendations have been ignored by the state but right now uh, in this current uh, atmosphere with a strong focus on technological solutions Um, that the state is promoting some of the best and most articulate pushback is coming from this Environmental Justice Advisory Committee. So it is a very interesting time in California climate policy. And regardless of all of the momentum that these technological sorts of approaches are gaining, there's still a lot of discussion coming from the grassroots about how to make sure that California climate policy is designed in a way that protects public health, and avoids these really dangerous traps that we're seeing appear from a markets and technological based approach to climate.
1: How does the Newsom administration, because Newsom definitely has a lot of at least rhetoric around being, you know, around diversity and uh, politics around race. And and I'm kind of curious because, you know, most environment, many environmental justice communities are those who are going to come from like black and brown communities. And I'm wondering how the Newsom administration responds to pushback, you know, directives, whatever, from e-tech?
0: Relatively, uh, in a diverse fashion, really, I would say one thing that I would take from the Newsom administration is that it's not monolithic. Um, That means that, yes, there are some signs of the administration really listening to frontline communities. I think You know, the fact that the state is finally considering a real robust setback rule to protect public health from oil and gas drilling. Uh, For listeners to know that, you know, even Texas already has a setbacks rule so that you can't drill next to people's homes or next to schools. And didn't
1: the city of Los Angeles just actually enact their own setback rule?
0: That's correct. So, you know, the administration, the Newsom administration has... um, You know, responded to pressure. But there's other instances, though, where I think we'd be um, concerned that the administration is just parroting the narrative of industry. And I think, you know, we do have to realize that Gavin Newsom is a governor, so he does call the shots for the Air Resources Board. And if the Air Resources Board is really busy trying to sell us on the idea that we're going to invent vacuum cleaners, to resolve the problem of, you know, climate change, we still have to say, well, hey, Gavin, you know, and there's been a couple other things that we've seen happen uh, over these couple of years of his administration, where we have some real doubts about his commitment to environmental justice. But at the same time, one has to recognize when Newsom has made some gestures that are important to EJ communities. I'd
1: actually like to kind of dig in a little bit around back on, on the revolving door. I'd be kind of curious, you know, you were talking about environmental nonprofits, being part of that revolving door, being part of that system. And it's a sort of like web of interconnectedness on this. And, and I wonder, I'd like to ask you what sort of role that they play in, in this sort of mix when we're pushing these like technological, mm-hmm. techno solutions, this techno fraud around things like carbon and capture. I'd, I'd be kind of curious about what role are they? Are they like a buffer to more left leaning nonprofits into communities or, or are they just a, a, a part of the PR apparatus? Or all of
0: the above. It's a, again. It's you know, an. A, I think it's really important to recognize that the you know the civil society community, as it were, is very diverse, um, and that include that can include also also the, not a monolith. It's not a monolith. Uh, essentially, that said, you know, there's no question that there are some larger, you know, really well funded. We're talking about. You know, organizations that have tens of millions of dollars, if not hundreds of millions of dollars to operate with every year, who ultimately have been colluding at a very high level behind closed doors with uh, a large number of these same personalities who have um, engaged in these revolving door journeys of of their careers um, to, you know, again, set the policy table on how the state will respond to climate. So there's one individual in particular who as we've researched what's going on with California climate policy, we were able to track his career trajectory from the organization Environmental Defense Fund. And then he went to work for the California Air Resources Board for many years. And then there was a short period Um, where he actually left the agency and worked for a lobbying firm, uh, where he actually represented the International Emissions Trading Association, which is an international NGO, except it is an industry NGO. Basically, the board members are from all the largest fossil fuel companies and mining companies on the planet. Um, And he represented the International Emissions Trading Association in 2017 during the politics of the extension of the California cap and trade program, the carbon market here. And then he went right back to work for the Air Resources Board um, and spent a couple more years there and then left the Air Resources Board. And in a matter of weeks, apparently uh, in 2021, went to work for a private lobbying company. Now, the Fair Political Practices Act requires that an agency official take, you know, like a year-long cooling-off period before they go from the agency working for any sort of interest that will be lobbying that agency on policy. Uh, But this individual, uh, his name is Virgil Welch, Uh, he went to work for a lobby company that immediately began lobbying for what we would call a geoengineering outfit uh, it's a carbon dioxide removal company uh, they suggest that they're going to be able to use pyrolysis and create a, a literal bile oil from agricultural forest residues and then pound that into the ground and suggest that it's stored Um, Which we find to be a really extreme sort of approach, uh, with some real potential problems. Not the least of which is the chance it won't work at all. Um, But we, you know, more importantly, what we've tried to look at instead of just the technology itself, but are the these politics? How how are these individuals able to go back and forth uh, between agencies and private interest, and why is it that you know, rules like the Fair Political Practices Act aren't being applied in these instances. And then another thing is, why is it then when we present the evidence around these cases, we can't get the media to cover it, Um, which is, you know, another dynamic, how hard it is to get the information out about these developments. And another reason why we really appreciate independent media like your podcast because we we know people are curious and are hungry for this information.
1: Yeah and that's another stop on the revolving door too, right? Is that sometimes people who work at these nonprofits or in these agencies or for these, you know, private, you know, for corporations and lobbying firms and things like that. They also sometimes make a stop in the world of journalism where they are like talking heads and commentators, etc.
0: It can be really interesting when you know you spend years trying to pitch A journalist on a story and then you find out that they're like working in the office of an elected official or something you know it's like okay i guess i see how that works um so it it is complicated and i guess that's why we spent some time last year stepping back a bit from actually assessing these technologies themselves Uh, for instance biofuel watch works internationally and one of the technologies we're most concerned about has been given a lot of sort of world-forming life by uh, the International Panel on Climate Change, for instance. Um, This is the bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration, the idea that you could, you know, be growing a crop or growing forest, and ostensibly that would, you know, sequester carbon, and then you burn that biomass in a facility but a facility that's outfitted with the carbon capture equipment so that you could capture that carbon avoid the emissions and then somehow transport and manage that carbon to to store it and that then you would have like a quote-unquote negative emissions technology now the biodiversity impacts the the water impacts there's so many impacts that are really well recognized, um, and and we had spent so much time looking at the environmental and public health impacts of these kinds of technologies. But then it was just increasingly looking deep into these issues. We'd be seeing these people; they kept popping up in different places, and it was like, well, what exactly is happening here to to have these agencies presenting us this information? Because it's not coming from us in the grassroots. It's not coming. From the communities that we're working with that are on the fence lines of existing industrial installations. So we started looking, we just tried to find out more about exactly where these policy suggestions were coming from. And it was really uh, quite a a journey and a a little bit disturbing, really, when we started learning what we were learning um, through research and through the use of the Public Records Act. Um, And so that's why we published this report late last year about uh, these politics. Um, It is a report that we call Carbon Capture or Captured Futures, How Fossil Fuel and Bioenergy Controls California Getting to Neutral Climate Policy. And uh, we really felt like we were getting so much information about the behind-closed-doors politics of this that that information itself um, made for a pretty good story.
1: You are listening to the silky smooth sounds of the green and red podcast and as always
0: we thank you for listening to us uh, we really appreciate it and then as always uh, we would like to ask you to subscribe uh, to us on whatever format you listen to whether it be on
1: podcast or on our youtube channel um you can follow us on instagram
0: twitter and facebook we are on linktree slash green and red podcast and we now also have postcards and if you have a coffee house or a library or a bookstore or someplace like that in your area, that might
1: be uh, a great spot to put some of these. Just ask us and we will send them to you free of charge to spread the word about the green red podcast. And you can email us at greenredpodcast@gmail at Gmail to get uh, a, a packet of your, of your postcards. Uh, and then if you really like us, you can, uh, donate and you know we we are very happy to get the donation and have the small base of small donors that we have uh and so you can either become a patron at patreon.com backslash green red podcast or you can make a one-time donation at green and red and just hit that support button it's also on the postcards uh and so uh you know thanks for listening and enjoy the show I'm kind of I'm kind of curious as as you were digging digging into this, who who is paying for these technologies to be developed for them to be used? Is it coming from the state? Was it part of Biden's infrastructure plan? Are the corporate entities paying for it out of their own pocket? Campaign work I've done in the past targeting banks around climate—they've talked about the, how they would like contribute money to you know to help and develop carbon capture and storage. I'm just kind of curious for what's been going on in California, where's the money coming from?
0: Well, I'd say right now, most of the money is coming from private interests more, more than anything. Um, but what is happening is that the proponents of these technologies are communicating that to be able to scale these up, that they're going to need public money to really make it work. Um, so the federal government uh, and you know the infrastructure deal that the Biden administration passed through. And then uh, there are some mechanisms of which I'm actually not as well informed as others, but the 45Q tax uh, mechanism uh, for promoting carbon capture is another means by which companies have been able to secure money uh, to do, you know, to try to implement these kinds of technologies. So there is a lot of thirst, you know, to quote unquote scale these up and and that's why people are looking very strongly to the federal government really even more so than the state government i think there's less interest in getting money straight up from the california state government for these technologies as there is getting sort of a a policy greasing of the skids to to set the table for it um but then there are also some Uh, market-based mechanisms. And most importantly, here in California, even though it has not really been utilized yet by proponents of these technologies, but there are pathways within what is known as the low carbon fuel standard for securing credits uh, for carbon capture and sequestration and as well for direct air capture and a whole slew of other really uh questionable technologies and and decarbonization mechanisms but when it comes to ccs and direct air capture the low carbon fuel standard is the incentive here in california that's been set up to make uh it possible to get more monies
1: so so one of their goals here is to also essentially create a market for this
0: yeah i concur i i think you know There's uh, a lot of proponents will say, well, hey, it doesn't do us any good uh, to sell, you know, our direct air capture um, project as offsets, you know, because clearly, you know, one of the things about California that's really, you know, curious is the fact that offsetting and carbon trading, you know, remain front and central but that so many of the experts that help get these mechanisms into place will will now say, oh, no, no, we can't offset anymore because clearly the, cli- the climate science is really clear that we have to reduce emissions at all sources. And, and this idea that we can, you know, make up for one emission over here by doing something over there, it doesn't really pencil out. But all the same, regardless of these sorts of um, kinds of, uh, you know, statements of reticence from the proponents to go into selling these carbon removals it's really clear that the economics are there and with the frameworks of like net zero that ultimately they're just going to try to sell credits on a market exactly what that mechanism is we, we don't know yet but that's clearly the you know kind of the trend
1: yeah we talk a lot about about neoliberalism and when you and i were talking about this the other day and just you know the, the more you know it comes out and comes out it's, it's completely part of this sort of like neoliberal agenda that we've seen for 40 years on on many other fronts and it's that i think that's the kind of important connection to make is that we have this we have this you know techno technological solution to this what in many ways is a political problem like you know the fossil fuel industry just owns politics and doesn't want to reduce emissions and so they come up with you know as a, a, a false solution as we like to call it and then you have these greedy capitalists that not that these guys aren't who are basically looking for ways to make money off of the false solution it's it's actually quite a, quite an amazing phenomenon which we've seen repeated over and over in history
0: well neoliberalism in California is really insidious because people are so indoctrinated that they don't even know that they're perpetuating it and they don't even know actually that that is the framework with Within which they're operating, so you know this idea of progressive California, basically now parroting the narratives around climate that were favored by the utilities and the fossil fuel industry, you know, 20 years ago, is isn't really recognized. But it's it's a very serious problem. Let's take the cap and trade program as an example. I mentioned earlier that in 2017. There was a big effort to extend the cap and trade program because originally it had only been given life until 2020. And so in 2017, the market was starting to collapse because they couldn't foresee what would happen in the future. And so there was a big sort of, again, behind closed doors deal made between Governor Brown at the time and companies like Chevron and others to, you know, to put together, to patch together this extension of cap and trade, but it came with a whole bunch of caveats. And one of the big caveats that was a giveaway to the fossil fuel industry is that it was established in that law, AB 398, that the sole mechanism in the state of California for reducing the carbon dioxide emissions from the large polluting facilities like the refineries in the state would be the market-based mechanism. And that, it would even preempt the authority of the local air districts to reduce the greenhouse gas emissions from these facilities. So ultimately, you know the real truth of it is, is that the cap, cap and trade uh, as the sole mechanism, meaning that the markets-based mechanism is the only legal mechanism in the state for regulating the pollution from these facilities. I mean, this is a, like a hardcore libertarian approach to policy. But we're told time and time again that California is a progressive state. We're told time and time again that California's climate policy is a, an example of how progressive California is. But, I mean, it is neoliberal by definition. There, you don't even have any sort of mechanism to maybe moderate the market. I mean, it's, the market is the sole mechanism for regulating the climate pollution from these facilities. So, I mean, welcome to neoliberal California.
1: Folks, you are hearing it here on the Green and Red podcast, the dirty underside of California's liberal exceptional politics on climate change was kind of stuff we love to talk about and naming names are also big on that. Uh, There's one particular egregious project that is happening I would really love to get a little, you know, to, for the for the folks listening at home to hear a little bit about more, which is this carbon capture and storage pipeline that is being built uh, out to the Central Valley. I was, I'm wondering the Central Valley of California. Uh, I'm just wondering if you could talk about that a
0: little bit. Well, my understanding is there there's still not like actually a car, a concrete project proposal for the pipeline, uh, but what what we are dealing with right now in California within the scoping plan. And what we're seeing happen from this sort of uh, mixture of state agency and private think tank and, uh, you know, big NGOs, and then the Lawrence Livermore National Lab is also very involved. And what they've done is try to float this idea of what they call a negative emissions system. For California, and in this idea, it would include you know direct air capture, so inventing these machines to suck carbon out of the air. Uh, the other big part is the bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration, where they would build literally dozens of new high-tech bioenergy plants around the state to you know utilize woody biomass to basically create bioenergy from our forests. But then they would you know ostensibly capture the carbon and transport it. Um, And that would require trucks, but it would also require the development of a very intricate carbon dioxide pipeline system to transport the CO2 back out to the Central Valley and then inject it into the geological formations that previously held oil and gas. So there's never yet been like a concrete plan Developed here in California, where there's a like a real carbon dioxide pipeline um, that's part of this negative emissions system. Uh, the environmental justice activists that I know in this state are watching with eagle eyes, and and if something does come up, we'll we'll know about it. But the the fact is is it is the pipelines that connect all of this together that the proponents are loath to discuss because the dangers of carbon dioxide pipelines are immense, and uh, the public safety and environmental threats of a whole new pipeline system of this nature are so serious that it's, it's really clear that the proponents are doing everything they can to avoid a real frank and transparent discussion of what they're proposing.
1: One one other question, since we're talking about the environmental justice communities, fence line communities, you know, a lot of these communities live next to refineries or they live next to, you know, places where there's heavy extraction. I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit specifically about how these communities are going to be affected um, by these, by the increasing push towards carbon capture and storage, cap and trade, all of all of what we've been talking about.
0: Well I think the first thing that's really uh, needing to be addressed, it's kind of a, a technical term, but it really you know has to do with the idea of delaying you know real true sustainable responses to climate change. Uh, academically, you call it mitigation deterrence. Uh, it's the idea that this really strong focus on carbon dioxide removal will simply, you know, obscure the urgency of the situation it will make people think that oh we can kind of keep doing what we're doing because there's some sort of technological salvation in the future and it dilutes the politics of the moment in such a way that you know someone who's proposing an alternative that's actually you know feasible for a community is considered unrealistic because it it doesn't you know have this technological promise of just making you know the atmosphere Clear of, um, you know, pollution. So, you know, I think number one, the, this idea of mitigation deterrence or, or, you know, undermining a politics of change, that's one of the biggest issues that E.J., uh, communities are dealing with. And, and that's where this involvement with the Environmental Justice Advisory Committee here in California around the development of the scoping plan is really important because in that space, the EJ communities are, are communicating that very point, that very concern. And then after that, it's just, you know, really, um, you know, one of industrial sacrifice zones. I mean, we have asked communities to shoulder the burden of pollution in an industrial situation, industrial system that has carried us to to the brink of, you know, total environmental breakdown. And now we're asking those same communities to shoulder, you know, the burden of the pollution and risk that would accompany a supposed technological response. Uh, So, you know, folks, I think really do have their guard up as it were to watch out for where this is going, because When it comes to environmental justice, this carbon capture frame on climate doesn't really promise relief for the communities that are already dealing with lots of heavy industry out there.
1: Yeah. I mean, the kind of the nice thing about the last few years since we've seen this sort of upsurge in in organizing and movement work around around climate is that the, the EJ communities have gotten like really super organized. And, you know, not only are they... Telling industry and politicians, you know what's okay and what's not okay, or, or no. There's also like a, a, a component there where a lot of nonprofits are also like much more. Where you know, 20 years ago, you'd even see like left of center nonprofits, which you know did not do consultation or take into consideration thing that you know EJ communities wanted, and that's very much that's a it's very it's a very different landscape in many ways.
0: I concur. I'm I'm with you on that, and I think even though you know several environmental justice stakeholders have had a really you know challenging uh, bit of terrain to cross, and it can be you know um, a thread a needle the thread. Uh, for instance, just around cap and trade, you know another truth of cap and trade though is that there's quite a bit of money being raised through the sale of allowances to the polluters, so that they can keep polluting, um, never. You know, nevertheless, the state has a fair chunk, a change in their hands. And a lot of environmental justice groups have had to do some soul searching and have had to actually kind of suck it up and maybe, um, you know, go contrary to some of their principles and get in there and fight for that money from cap and trade so they can make sure that their communities are getting some of this money. So it can be very complex. It can be very, very difficult terrain to cross. Nevertheless, EJ groups, from my experience, are gaining a lot of experience. I think another thing that's happening slowly but surely is that EJ groups in California are getting better in tune with what's happening globally and internationally and are becoming more sensitive to how uh, certain compromises at home here in California can be weaponized against our partners and uh, you know, and, and communities that we're working with in the global South, for instance, around cap and trade and markets, when, when we say, well, okay, I guess we can kind of live with that, you know, it ends up getting rammed down the throat of communities that are in you know, real state of marginalization uh, in, in other parts of the world. Um, But really your point that the EJ movement is stronger right now is it's true 100%. And I hope that I can continue to endeavor to challenge my own assumptions and uh, stay away from, you you know, traps of uh, not continuing to learn and evolve and and to be of the right kind of support for, for communities that are really putting up the good fight.
1: Yeah. I concur. I, I also challenge myself along those lines all the time, mm-hmm. frequently. So my it's top of my mind, honestly, a lot these days, um, we are kind of getting near the end of our time. I'm wondering if there's anything else that you would want to throw out there or, or if you want to just like share different ways in which people can get involved. You and I are obviously both in the San Francisco Bay area, but you know, our audience is international. And so just you know places where people can learn more or places where they can get involved i think would would be great for people at home to hear
0: well, I, I do wanna really quickly touch on one other matter that I've been working on very hard uh, through Biofuel Watch. And it is uh, you know, a dynamic that's relevant globally and across the United States, but has really become very acute here in the United States. And that's this pivot towards biofuels. And in this instance here in the California and in, in the San Francisco Bay area is that there's two refineries that are in this process of converting to uh, manufacturing what's called renewable diesel or sustainable aviation fuel from what we've assessed will largely be soy based vegetable oil. Uh, so I just want to flag for folks, we're working on this really hard, uh, but that these uh, drop in liquid biofuels really present very serious evidence based threats to global forests because of the increased demand for a uh, high deforestation risk commodity like soy and what that can have, the kind of impact that can have on on, uh, feedstock markets. And then also the really uh, greenhouse gas intensive process for making those fuels and the massive amount of fossil gas that goes into acquiring the hydrogen to be able to hydro treat those vegetable oils so it's another issue that i've been working on really hard and i just really want to hold it up to folks as another example of how you know decarbonization doesn't always uh have you know the kind of climate benefit that we're being told it will have so this issue with liquid biofuels is really acute and one to watch and so of course biofuel watch we're an international organization and you can find us online our website is biofuelwatch.org.uk and we have a lot of different information about uh, different uh, matters that we're working on globally uh, here in california and then um you know really a great deal of our organization's efforts is in the united kingdom
1: real quick on the on the on the biofuels piece the the vegetables the soy all that that's being imported to the Bay Area from the Brazilian Amazon. correct? What was the Brazilian Amazon?
0: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to be that direct connection. So we're trying to educate folks about what's called indirect land use change. And that's the idea of market elasticity. And that with increased demand for making fuel um, for a commodity that's used for food or for animal feed, or something that inevitably it will increase demand for a whole array of commodities. So the thread we're following is how the increased demand for soy for making fuels at refineries here in the San Francisco Bay area will lead to the expansion of the palm oil sector in Southeast Asia and, you know, threatens the loss of tens of thousands of acres of pristine rainforests as, as palm oil uh, you know, industry keeps spreading itself out into, you know, new terrain. So that, that question of indirect land use change is really important. It's not that we would be necessarily using soy oil direct from Paraguay, but uh, we have friends, colleagues in, in Paraguay. Who would who have looked at the project and they looked at the Phillips 66 refinery proposal here in the Bay Area to make biofuels from soy and they said, well, that's like feeding a hundred million pigs a year, and that's what it is. Anywhere that there's an increase in demand in demand for these commodities, then we're just helping that agricultural model continue to you know drive deforestation and.
1: You know, it's as it's as deadly for the climate as and for communities as as the fossil fuel sector and the emitting of of fossil fuels.
0: There's no easy answers to climate change. I think people keep hoping that you can twist a dial or turn a knob or that there's going to be a technical technological response and change your bulb. Yeah, I mean it's a. I mean, uh, there's some basic living things that are that are important. You know, try to keep your thermostat down. You know, I definitely I'm trying to consume less, but. Anyone who thinks it's going to be easy is just you know basically kind of well, my friend cassandra uh I've been working with her a little bit, and she's been writing uh some new stuff about climate opium and just how desperate people are for some sort of you know easy fix and it's it's just not not gonna be like that so I definitely encourage folks to to be you know to be open and ready for the kinds of political change that we really need need to instigate Um, because otherwise you you know we're we're just not we're not going to get there.
1: Folks, you've been listening to Gary Graham Hughes with Biofuel Watch here on the Green and Red podcast. Uh, Gary, it's been great talking with you today. Definitely check out Biofuel Watch and the, you know, other resources that Gary talked about through our interview, definitely check out this, this report uh, on, on carbon capture and California politics. And as always, if you want to check out the green red podcast, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, hit subscribe on YouTube and feel free to make a donation at greenredpodcast.org, hit the support button or go to our Patreon page for the cost of less than the cost of a beer, $3 a month you can become a patron of the green and red podcast patreon.com backslash green red podcast great talking and we will be back with more soon everybody take care